you're sort of in love with the person, yes, and the body, yes, but also this like whole fantasy about completion and belonging and safety. And then as we spend time with people that we fall for, they become, you know, the fantasies are like some cracks show up in the fantasy and you start to see them as a little bit more, like the projection disperses, the fantasy disperses a little bit and you see their humanness. Mm-hmm. And, and then it transitions into like human closeness or human intimacy, which for lots of us is really hard to tolerate, actually. It's easier to relate with a fantasy. Coming all the way from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C., we now bring you Enter the Freud. Warning, this podcast is for entertainment only, not intended for medical purposes. Listen at your own risk. Rihanna and Chris Brown. Okay. And it was Chris Brown talking. And Chris Brown, like there was this in the news, I don't know however many years ago, like that there was like some, he got like arrested for punching her or something. Mm. I don't Do you remember that? I don't remember this news item. It, and it was like near, it was kind of around like the Grammys or and Rihanna was like the celebrated artist at the time. And then like a week later, like Chris Brown gets arrested for punching her. And so just the story was just like, what a asshole, toxic, horrible man he is that he would like punch her and she had to go to the hospital and then i don't know much later there he like they were coming out and talking about their relationship but anyways i was listening to him tell the story um and as he was telling the story i started to you know part of that is like um, we americans we love like the celebrity gossip and the celebrity relationships thing and that's probably why i started listening to it. but as he was telling it, it was like the chris brown rihanna celebrity thing faded and i started just to hear a human telling like an extremely common human story and it was like oh chris brown and rihanna they're just average humans like the rest of us and i've heard this story so many times from patients and from friends and i've lived the same story um and it's like and so the story he was telling was that like when he and rihanna met they just like fell wildly, insanely, passionately in love and they were like inseparable and they just were like, I don't remember what it was and I'll just now make up, a, I'll make up the archetypal story and that they just like would go and take a vacation to the Riviera and like be in a hotel and just like make love sexually and make love emotionally and psychologically nonstop 24-7. You know, it's like that story, and it's so much fun to hear that story, and it's such a human experience. And then, you know, fast forward however long, and then their fights, and he would say they would just fight, and that they would both get so violently angry at each other, and that they would both um, get physically violent with each other. And he was like, he's like, and it's not okay for a man to hit a woman. And I feel like such a fucking horrible person for doing that. But I just get sucked into this like emotional, irrational, passionate place where I lose my mind. And I'm just like possessed by anger. And I do stupid, shameful, unforgivable things. 
And as he was saying this, this person who, when I first heard the news, I, like everyone else, thought, oh, what a fucking horrible, dumbass person. He should go to jail. Mm -hmm. And when he was saying that, I was like, totally felt compassion and even empathy for him. And I'm like, oh, I know that feeling. Um, Which with that, I guess if I'm having two different thoughts, the one thought is that how we just sort of... um, pigeonhole or scapegoat or whatever these celebrities and turn them into just like horrible people when you actually hear the human story behind it um it's a different story but the main thought that i'm getting at is that story of intense bliss Mm -hmm. eros Mm -hmm. is well first off let's just start with that that story of intense bliss eros is the greatest that (laughs) that that's space that a human can get in. That's like the best space mm-hmm. that a human can possibly be in. That's wonderful. Um, and we could almost just talk about that, but I've sort of ruined the the punchline or something in that. But that seems to set up a f- the, 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 the like exile from Eden eventually. Mm-hmm. Like that's Eden. And when, if you get in Eden, eventually God's going to boot you out of Eden. And when you're booted out of Eden, the fall is fucking painful. Mm, Yeah. And so then I guess the way to start moving this conversation is to sort of pose to you as a therapist and a couples therapist of like, um, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people, most people, I hope everyone's experienced that state because it's the fucking greatest thing ever. And then I think a lot of people think that that's how a relationship should be and it should mm-hmm. stay like that, yeah. right? And I don't know if I'm wise and mature and rational or whether I'm like jaded and beat down. <laughs> but like, I don't believe that's a sustainable thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And so just let me, let me hear your thoughts on that state and the sustainability of it and sort of the big questions about that that's a fun question so yeah i guess i think about you know a word we could use for that initial wonderful intoxicating bliss is is limerence right which is this word given to the the initial flow of hormonal (laughs) intoxication oh it's wonderful it's riveting right and who knows how long it lasts. It's like for some people, it might just be like this first six weeks or the first three months. And if you're lucky, you get 18 months or something of limerence. And part of the way I see it is that in some ways, it's like you've fallen in love with a, a fantasy, like a fantasy that's in you. Like you've found someone who's close enough that you can project the fantasy onto them and they similar you're close enough there's some of these key places where you line up and they can project a fantasy onto you and so you're sort of in love with the person yes and the body yes but also this like whole fantasy about completion and belonging and safety and this this so there's a there's a fantasy element there and then as we spend time with people that we fall for, they become, you know, the fantasies are like some cracks show up in the fantasy and you start to see them as a little bit more, like the projection disperses, the fantasy disperses a little bit and you see their humanness. Mm-hmm. And, and then it transitions into like human closeness or human intimacy. 
which for lots of us is really hard to tolerate, actually. It's easier to relate with a fantasy, like the song you hear, the romantic like love song that you hear, or the Hollywood romance. It's like, we want to project into that. But the actual human contours of intimacy are messier and there's not as many like soaring moments <laughs> right and you start to feel your partner's limitations you start to feel your own limitations they start to see you aspects of you you'd rather not show you start to see aspects of them they'd rather not show and that's what that's the real like blood and sweat of human intimacy yeah. and it's, I think it's really beautiful in a different way. It's not beautiful in the glossy fantasy way. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful in the like, oh, this is the grit of loving another human and me showing you the way I'm messy and you showing me the way you're messy. Yeah. And, but I think this thing you're talking about, the, like, you know, the, maybe for these two, the rage that came out is like, maybe that was the moment where they actually started to encounter each other. Mm-hmm. As, as full humans, beautiful and also limited and flawed, you know, and then whatever kinks in their attachment system are there around, like actually encountering another human, start to surface. Yeah. And for those two, maybe there's like tremendous rage. And for lots of people, you know, for some people there might be tremendous fear, like oh no, now I've got to run away or hide myself or you know who knows what comes out, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, so that's how I, I don't know. Does that resonate? Is that how you make sense of it? Totally. Too? But okay, so that what you're just saying, which I see it the same way, um, leads to this perspective. And I think a lot of like good therapists, why th- people, therapists who've done a lot of this work themselves and have done a lot of work for people come to this perspective, which I think was implicit in what you're saying, but I, I just have mixed feelings about it, is that like, emotional maturity or relational maturity or like if humans evolve and get to a more mature place what they do is they realize that this fantasy this this kind of youthful fantasy is unsustainable and is kind of delusional or it's youthful and it's immature and so let's say it's you and me. So I fall in love with you and I like think you're the most amazing unicorn in the universe and it's so great. And so I just want to like make love to you in every which way 24-7, right? And, and this perspective is that I'm not really even seeing you. I'm actually seeing my fantasy that I project on you. And that eventually with time, that, that projection, that like illusion that I've cloaked you in will slowly decay and then I'll see the real you and then I'll be fucking pissed at you because you're not the unicorn I thought you were and then we fight and whatever um okay and and so then this therapeutic wisdom maturity perspective is that David needs to learn to accept that the woman he falls in love with is just a human being Mm -hmm. and she has good parts and bad parts and and, and, and you, were, you did a good job describing this different type of love. It's like the mature love. Um, and that love is like two real humans see each other for good and for bad, and they accept each other for good and for bad, and they stay committed for good and for bad. And then there's a partnership, and there's stability, 
And then both of us, since I can see your imperfect parts and I still love you, you feel more truly seen in love and then vice versa. And that's kind of like a healing thing for both of us. And so we kind of grow and get healthier. Um, Okay, so I think a lot of like more seasoned wise therapists kind of have this perspective. But what's implicit in that is that that kind of love is like better. (laughs) And the Chris Brown, Rihanna kind of love is immature and volatile. And it's it's they're riding the roller coaster and the highs are fucking high, but the lows are low. And us mature therapists, we don't get on that roller coaster. We do this much more stable, long lasting, secure thing where we see, you know, and like, I believe that. But on the other hand, I'm wondering, like, I don't know. Is it that simple? Uh And like, is the like pinnacle of wisdom? (laughs) I'm just going to say it in this kind of. Uh, funny um, and slightly dark irony ways. Like, is the pinnacle of wisdom to be in a relationship where you don't really have those (laughs) fucking ecstatic... Where there's not much excitement? Right. Yeah. Right, is that somehow developmentally more advanced? Well, that's the the implication. Well, here's the thing I'm wondering, is that I do think that the, the, the way that maturity comes into play here is that in this initial limerence, let's say, like you made it sound like it didn't have anything to do with me. It was just like you, it was complete projection. It was from within your imagination and you projected that onto me. And I think that's, I'm wondering if that's a, a more immature way that limerence happens. In other words, could it be that you actually do sense something about me. You're sensing something about my essence, about the way I talk or move through the world or what I care about or how I show up in my relationships. So there is like my essence is in there, but then you're inflating it with your fantasy. You know, and I do think that with maturity, people actually learn to sense into the other human And feel like there's my subjectivity and there's your subjectivity. I know you're different than me. So even though I've got like sort of my, you know, lavender colored shades and I'm seeing you as more beautiful than perhaps you are, I am still seeing you. Mm -hmm. And that comes with maturity is the ability to see another human as separate. And so that you you're you're not just a projection of my fantasy. You're also you with my projection on top. You know, and then maybe I don't think I answered your question exactly if it's more advanced. But but I do think that that's how maturity plays a role in here. You know, I mean, I totally agree with that. Okay, so let me now let me get back to Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, because um, they're maybe a good example of this now. And and so they they like released this interview where they talked about their marriage and and their open marriage and stuff like that. And when I watched the interview, I had the sense that. You know, they're older now. I think they have been together a long time and they met when they were young. They're older now. And I had the sense that they're pretty mature and they sort of had done what I'm talking about is like worked through stuff and they'd both done a lot of therapy and they both seemed much more mature. Um, and I agree. I, I like what you just said and agree with what you said is as you get mature, you can you actually can see the of the true other person and you can fall in love with that and that can become intoxicating. Um but that then that also fades. I don't know if it always does. Well, that right. That's the question. It, in my, I think in most maybe in my view of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, it has faded. At least I, who knows? I can't tell. But when I was watching the interview, I was like, it was it was a cool story, and they were being really 
I loved it was like mature and wise what they're doing, but I was also like, but they they don't they're not in love and they don't have passion for each other and they you and they feel that and they don't want to go fly to the Riviera and make uh, love for twenty four seven. How could you feel that in watching them? I could be wrong, but yeah, my sense was that that they're together. My guess is that they're together as a loving, but loving in the way that like family members love, not in the way that lovers love. That they're together as a loving couple. And that they're committed and they love each other in the way family members love each other, but that they don't have this new lover, romance, joy, erotic excitement. Let's go to the Riviera together and do it. There's, it's like, there's, I don't, there's not that many people except for new lovers who are like, let's go stay in a hotel and not leave the hotel for four days. Uh Like the only people who want to do that are new lovers. And it's kind of a delusional state. You know, it is intoxicating <laughs> and it's the best. I think it's the best state humans can be in. Yeah. But the only people who want to go into a hotel and not leave for four days, four days. are new, new lovers. lovers. Is that true? Or gamer, like addicted video gamers. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> video gamers. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. God, that's so horrible. That's totally true. And then we could add other people who are ups- like, like drug addicts, a person a heroin addict could probably go into a hotel room with some heroin for four days, yeah, right? For four days and go into a trance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Video gamers. Oh, That's fucking totally sorry, true. But it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in terms of a relationship, you know? Yeah. Like if you've been in a relationship with a guy for a long time, you've been in the relationship for several years, like you don't want to go into a hotel room and stay in the hotel room with just him for four days. You'd rather go out and go walk around. And get some other stimulation elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That you might choose to express with your partner. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess I'm only drawing on my clients and my own personal experiences, but I, I guess I do think that limerence is a temporary, Mm -hmm. it is temporary. And 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 maybe that's actually part of what makes it transcendent in the way that like, you're cherishing it when it's there, knowing that I guess the first time you have it, you don't know that it's it's probably going to disperse or, or settle a little no, bit. No, you're in a delusional state and you think that it'll last forever. And then you're devastated when you realize that that starts to wane a yeah. bit. And you start to fight the other person because you don't want to you don't want to slip through your fingers. And so there starts to be like, no, hmm. you can't become yourself. You can't become your actual embodied self. I need you to stay as this idealized self. Yeah. Yeah. But what if it's temporary and that's part of its beauty? Like that in the same way that Mm -hmm. like you can be more, if you're actually at peace with the fact that you're going to die, you can actually, you can be awake Mm -hmm. through your life. It feels similar to that. Um, And there's a little bit of this where it's like, you know, I mentioned video gaming or heroin, like there, and both of those have a kind of like grasping for pleasure too. Right. And I do think that there, that culturally perhaps we do grasp for limerence or we grasp for that, like for the pleasure, the dopamine hit of new love, you know, and, um, and I don't, I guess you'd almost have to, would you have to shift from one person to the next maybe to get the, Right, to keep that drug flowing, the limerence flowing. And for sure people do that. And for sure people do that. And that's love addiction. Right. 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 It's like, ooh, I gotta get the I gotta find the next person that I can like 
go into Project that dopamine intoxication. Into, yeah. Um, but, th- but okay, so that that and that seems like obviously an immature, not great way to live is like always looking for the next dopamine um, fix from the next person and yeah. cycling through people, especially if we're cycling through people on a weekly basis. That sounds bad, but th- but what our culture. Con- says is the proper way to do it is just to have the dopamine intoxication once. Yeah. When you're 24, mm-hmm. you have it for a year or six months or maybe two fucking years if you're lucky, and then it goes away, and then you don't ever get it again for the rest of your life. Yeah. That doesn't sound that great either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I actually really liked the way you described it. I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective, and that is kind of beautiful. And I also feel like there's been a lot of really fucking great art and poetry and music that I kind of was hearing as you were saying that is like the one true love in my life and all the like poems and music and whatever that like are written about that one true Mm -hmm. love the transcendent love yeah yeah but I don't know there's but I also think this this is a really interesting moment culturally to be talking about this question because I think um you know, there's for the last 20 or 30 years, there's been way more questioning of monogamy or like long term commitment. And people are, you know, I think the queer community caught on to this long before this, the straight community. But like people are experimenting and finding other ways to to keep Eros kind of alive or flowing in their relationship, even if they have a whether they have a primary partner or not. So it's a, it's a, it's a really cool time to think about this and it's not so there's much more fluidity in all realms of our, of sexual culture right now, gender expression for sure, but also relationship structure and monogamy, non-monogamy. So it's a great time to be asking that question. Yeah. And you're what I'm hearing as you're saying that your sense is that that's historically what we're in is a, exploring asking questions exploring new territory rather I, than I think so. having having it figured out I don't think it's all yeah it doesn't feel figured out it feels very much at play and I think there's certain part at least in the United States there's certain sort of like you know kind of like uh, what would what would be the word like certain segments of the population that are willing to be experimental in this way and other segments of the population that aren't you know so it's not and no judgment either way, but it's like, I do think there's, there's sort of a movement towards um, more openness, more questioning, more fluidity, um, less faith in the heteronormative institution of marriage overall for heterosexual people and not for heterosexual people, yeah. you know? There's this perspective I've heard a lot recently. This guy wrote this book it's kind of, I don't know what I think about it, but it's an interesting idea. And the, I don't know if this is the title book, but this is the kind of the key idea is luxury beliefs. If you, if you Google search luxury beliefs, you'll find this guy. Okay. He's a super young guy and it's kind of a cool, new, interesting perspective. And the general idea is that, um, more economically like, like rich, privileged college educated people, have these various beliefs um, that seem really cool, 
but that they actually don't work that well mm -hmm. for a lot of people and especially people who don't have the economic educational privilege and and non-monogamy is one of the main ones he talks about yes. um and and I, I i don't really i don't remember it too well i haven't read the book i've read a little and i've heard him speak but um the, here's my attempt to super simplify the idea is that that non-monogamy or open relationships um, purport to like allow more flexibility or exploring new territory or allow new possibilities. Um, and actually, I think personally I'm on board with that. But this other side critique is that, uh, but it's, it, has it has really bad effects in terms of family stability and in terms of what kids actually grow up with. Mm -hmm. And that for household family stability, this whole idea of open relationship, non-monogamy thing is actually disastrous. Mm. And that, and he has some critique of these like economically privileged, educationally privileged people that are sort of talking about this thing. And then there's this interesting contrast in that actually those, like if you, if you look at the stats of marriage and long-term stable relationships and um, income, Richer people get married way more and are way more monogamous and stay married way more. Wow. And lower income people way less. Hmm. And he's like, but it's the richer people that are talking about this non-monogamy. He just had, it's just an interesting criticism he makes of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I I have two thoughts about it. One is like that. Um, I guess the I would like to read his argument, but the if I'm if I'm gleaning it from what you're saying. Like, maybe we could think of this as sort of on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like, that if you've got your sort of survival needs met and your relationship needs, and then this is like sort of for people that, that you'd have to already have a relatively comfortable life, maybe, yeah. right? To be able to think like, you know, I have a partner where we, we don't have to hustle for our survival needs. Yeah. What, what else do I need <laughs> to feel actualized, yeah. to like feel yeah. like my life is rewarding? Yeah. And so I can see it in that way. That, But I just don't think that... Okay, so having said that, I do think that at least within like sort of the polyamory world that what I've read, the data shows that it is actually polyamory is more common in like white, upper middle class... Yeah college educated people and you could argue that that's like because maybe they have time and consciousness psychological availability right not having other stressors to be able to like actually look for fulfillment in yeah. multiple relationships yeah. so that i think is a valid yeah that's a valid point totally i think i, I think the as maslow's hierarchy of needs is a good uh, is a very relevant thing to bring what's the this. middle one again i was forgetting survival Blank actualization. Mm -hmm. I, it feels like there's a couple. So yeah, it's like physical needs. Oh, good. Yeah. Right, and then um, <laughs> I think I can't remember exactly. Well, the emotional needs are in there. Uh huh. And then I think like career or identity needs are in there. Okay. And then yeah, as it goes up, it gets to these, and and so I, it's it does seem like higher up is this like exploring my sexual you know all the subtle little sexual 
play stuff I want to do feels like really high up. Like that's a luxury. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have the luxury to be like, oh, tonight I'd like to wear a Peter Pan costume. Right. Yeah. Like I haven't gotten to wear the Peter Pan costume yet, and I don't feel fulfilled. And I need to yet. express that part of my identity tonight. <laughs> right. That's a fucking luxury. Yeah. But then how do we explain the fact that, I mean, I don't know about you, but many of my clients who are in their 20s are choosing or falling into open relationship structures. And they may or may not have economic security, relational security. So there's also a thing happening in the younger generation that is not about, you know... And I think this that's guy, not the same demographic. And I think this guy would argue, and that's not good for our culture, particularly for the that I think as I, I, I might not be making his argument well, but that it's like a there's like a loosening and dissolve. There's like there's like stru- like there's like the old structure of marriage and monogamy that had like a solidifying effect on our culture to like keep families together and there was economic security there and there was like familial security to raise the kids in that and that was good for the kids that i think that's the argument and that this the effect of this non-monogamous luxury belief is it's loosening and dissolving that Mm -hmm. and that the rich and privileged that's okay because somehow they still end up doing that Mm -hmm. Whereas the not rich and not privileged, they, it, it, there is this dissolving, dissolute impact, and it's actually worsening. And, there, and then there's this argument, that look, historically, that like 60 years ago, the, the institution of marriage was much more solid on all levels. Mm-hmm. But that as this dissolving impact has happened, kind of after the 60s, it's like the lower income people who've suffered more hmm. and especially the lower income kids who were brought up without fathers sure. primarily. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I definitely can sniff out a sort of conservative or reactionary thread to that argument because if really what he's, and I don't know if this is what he intends, but if really his intention is to protect children's well being, mm-hmm. then, um, monogamous heteronormative marriage has not been particularly good for children either, you know, because, um, you know, kids get exposed to domestic violence. They get exposed to substance abuse. They get exposed to miserable fucking parents, miserable (laughs) parents who are unhappy with each other, you know? And so I, I just, I don't know that it's worth trying to maintain that for the sake of totally. I, I just think there's a lot of other ways that children can learn about can, like, and I think if they're, if the adults around them are healthy and um, emotionally healthy, then they, that they have the best chance of growing up to be emo- emotionally healthy, you know? So I'd much rather have a child grow up in an open marriage where the parents actually are communicating well and loving each other rather than a monogamous marriage in which the dad is beating the, the mom totally like or it just, just seems like no just competition medicating with himself medicating with alcohol because like he hates his wife yeah. so he has to be drunk all day so this idea that we're going to go back to the good old times of marriage i think is false yeah. i just don't think that's i mean i just don't think that's real real you know I am interested in this thing of like, okay, anyway, you're going to change gears. No, finish that thought. The thing of like, that 
working class or lower middle class people are are have are were are impacted more negatively by open relationship structures than middle or upper class yeah. families that is really new to me and i don't i yeah. can't and, understand and, what the structure is of that argument i, I don't totally understand it but I, th- I think it seems like this guy has done his research so he has a good argument and it, it, i think it's it's more like the dissolution you know the, if we go back in time a hundred years or something i don't really know like you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to stay with that person and you're supposed to like raise the kids together. That was a really clear, strong value a hundred years ago. And starting kind of in the sixties, slowly but surely that value has weakened and dissolved. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the argument is that, um, and then, and then I think you could look at the statistics of how many kids grow up in a household where mom and dad are present on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and how many like, if we go back to the 50s, how many dads are like out making money, bringing it home to support the family? Mm-hmm. And, and then how the statistics have changed over the decades. And, and then the argument is that as the marriage um, value has dissolved, so has this nuclear family. And that the effects of that in terms of like poverty or um, mm-hmm. single parent households, nice. that all those things seem to correlate. Yeah. I, is my, is my guess is the argument of some of that, which I, I don't, I, you know, it feels like maybe correlation, not causation in my mind, but it is a interesting yeah. idea to. I also wonder if he's like not saying it explicitly, but trying to talk about race. And that makes me uncomfortable. Like, I don't know. That makes me want to dig deeper and hold, like hold the question open wider because even this thing you said about like, the man going off to make money and come home to the ch- like that's even that is a kind of like there's a whitewashed history there of like that even in the 50s that was that only represented a certain demographic and of you, families and it right? seems like that's more like the white family i think that's an upper middle class white family or at least that's the the that was the norm that was established for right and you think of leave it to beaver and that is, there is that portrayal of the white family but and again i don't i should have done my research before trying to talk about this but <laughs> i'd like to watch this yeah hear this guy's argument but there's this i remember watching some documentary about the about the like about one really important historical turning point that black americans suffered horribly from and i don't remember but it was something about um that back in the 40s, um, you know, something about the migration up north, that there was a lot of black men well-employed at factories, like in the 40s. And that, so that there was a growing, healthy middle class of black American families. And I don't know this, but let's speculate. And that they were kind of following more this norm, this uh-huh. leave it to beaver norm. And then I think something historically happened about more like economically in terms of like industry and factory jobs and whatever, mm. but that really fucked black men over in terms of employment. Okay. And I, it, it, and actually, as I'm thinking aloud, it, it could be that that's would be more um, the cause of the degradation of the nuclear right. family, as opposed to this idea that you don't need to be married. Yeah. Uh, but I have heard some, um, I can think of a couple names. Uh, black academics talk about 
black values and monogamy and family values versus non-monogamy and I don't need to raise my kids and that they've criticized the black American values for shifting from no you got to be married to the woman and raise the kids to no it's okay to not so there's that conversation in the black community happening too yeah I mean and we're I feel like what we're approaching is that there's so many social movements that have sort of layered on top of each other to get us to this moment of openness and fluidity in relationships, you know, including the civil rights movement, including the feminist movement, including even the sexual revolution, right, in the 60s. So here we, you know, it's like, and then I don't know what else either, but yeah, there's obviously, it's hard, it may be hard to attribute it to one. Yeah, for sure. And this guy wants to attribute it to like non-monogamy somehow. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like a bigger yeah, swirl, agree. a bigger cultural swirl than that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, but this was the question I was going to ask a minute ago. Um, yeah. But so, what do you think of? Um, I can just sort of picture clients I've worked with or friends I have where they're in a long-term monogamous relationship, and it's kind of like, all right, the. Excitement is gone, but what culture says I'm supposed to do is just keep plodding along. And we get along good enough, but versus, oh, I can, like, get on a dating app and start, or whatever, start flirting. with. It's like, it's like opening this door, right? It's like, it's like, let's keep the door closed and keep my marriage really solid versus let's open the door of Tinder and usher in, like... God only fucking knows what. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a destabilizing. There's, it feels like there's a super high percentage chance that when you open the Tinder, when that guy I'm talking about opens the Tinder door, it's going to be destabilizing. To his to, primary relationship. Right. And, and thus to the structure of his whole life. Yeah. And then potentially to the structure of his children's life. Yeah, I can see that, although it seems really dependent on, I guess, the intention. Like, why is the guy look, why is the guy opening Tinder? Is he opening Tinder because he's dissatisfied with his wife or bored with his wife and trying to get some, trying to source some erotic energy somewhere else Mm -hmm. that he's then going to bring home to his wife to try to, like, have a dynamic relationship? Um is he open with her about what he's looking for? What is he looking for? Even psychologically, I'm really curious about that. What is he looking for there that he doesn't have at home? How does that relate to his sort of like psychological structure? Um, and also, yeah, just like what's the intention there? Is he talking to his wife about what he's feeling? Yeah. Is she also opening Tinder? Or is his, I don't know, maybe he's gay and his hus- and his husband is opening Tinder and they've decided that that's, Like, they both want to give each other permission. There's so many permutations of this, and I think it does come down to intention. And and my bias, I think as a therapist, but also just as an individual, is in the direction of openness around this, as opposed to the, like, don't ask, don't tell, just go get your, like, get off however you get off and then come home and don't ask, don't tell, which is a more European model, actually. I think more European couples operate that way, and it seems to work well in Europe. Um 
I think my, I think I lean a little bit more towards transparency and open communication around if people are going to decide and use to the, open their marriage. Right, use the word, in, it's, it gets back to the intention. And see if you can kind of simplify and describe what the bad intention category is versus what the good intention category right. is. Right. Hmm. Can I do that? What is the bad intention? Well, certainly there could be a like, there can be an escapist tendency there. It's like, okay, you're my primary relationship. I'm struggling with you, but I'm feeling conflict avoidant around it. So instead of doing the like relational work with you that would, that ultimately would help me evolve as a being and help you as evolve as a being, I'm kind of going to do a more avoidant thing and like, whatever. I'm just going to like press pause on our relationship and go get a like dopamine fix somewhere else. And that seems to me, I don't know that that's negative. I just think that it's, if the, if the person is actually engaged in a process of evolution or waking up, which not everybody is. I mean, if you're just looking for pleasure, that's an okay strategy. But if you're trying to live the sort of like this, the observed life or the awake life, um, that feels to me like overly avoidant. I'm just trying to get away from my discomfort in one relationship by pulling in another relationship. Now I've got the complications with this relationship and the complications with this relationship. And I'm actually feeling I'm like actually overextended emotionally. And I obviously have like some avoidant tendency here because I didn't want to do it with you. And so then when it gets complicated over here, I could maybe ride the limerence for a few months, but then it's going to get complicated because human relationships are complicated in a way that can be really heart opening, but can also be really maddening. So um, that I think if that were my client, you know, who was like doing this avoidant thing and just doing trying to get some relief in an escapist way, I would just want to ask them questions about what that's their, what's yeah. your intention? Yeah. No, Are you I trying think, to get away from the hard I work? I think that's a good, I, I think you're onto something there. Okay. Well, so now the other question now, see if you can describe the good intention, the good intention behind opening one's yeah. opening. So non-monogamy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I can capture all the, I don't want to be the spokeswoman for that, but like, it's almost like we should listen to multiple voices on that. But um, well, yeah, you, you share first. I'll, I, I think I probably could answer the question too. What's the what's the like positive reason for non-monogamy? Yeah. Well, I think what you just did a good job describing is a very common, common. dubious, not healthy, escapist, avoidant, immature thing. Yeah, but very understandable and very human. Right. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to approach the discomfort with you. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to look elsewhere for, you know, for, for relief. So, okay. The, let's see, what is the more. Like mature and constructive and wise and. Yeah, I guess I would say, um, I'll put some words to it and then you put some words to it, but I would say it's something like, um, that. Uh, okay, let's say, again, you and I are in a primary relationship, that there's a certain kind of wholeness or stability here, and um, you don't meet all my needs, but ne- but no no intimate partner can meet all my needs, and I haven't hired you to meet my needs. I've hired you to be my companion. Not hired you, but I've partnered with you to be my companion, 
Okay. And so there's a certain wholeness or okayness here. And then there's, maybe we're up on the top of Maslow's triangle again here, but there's some sense of like, um, there's other strands of my, there's another aspects of my identity or other archetypes in my being, to, like if in a more Jungian sense, that are not getting expressed or nourished or nurtured in my relationship with you. And so I might, I might go looking for a person who, um, who reflects back that other aspect of me or that other archetype in me. And I get to express this other archetype, this like, maybe I'm very like earnest and intellectual with you. And I get to be a little bit more playful and, and risk-taking with another partner. And there's a sense that I'm getting to like, in, like integrate all aspects of self, not all with you because it's okay. We're innately limited. Our bond is innately limited in some way. Um, and, but when I hold, like when I have multiple partners, I feel different aspects of myself and I feel excited in different ways. And there's like, and sexual variety too is part of what people go looking for to not be bored sexually, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, What do you think? (laughs) Well, I'll speak to it now, but it's, well, kind of opens up a whole can of worms. I'm going to be blabbing for a while here. Okay. (laughs) But the, 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 uh, as you were, the last thing you just said makes me think of this thing you hear the swingers say a lot is like, I love eating pizza, but after eating pizza for a while, a hamburger sure sounds good. Yeah. That's so funny. (laughs) And it's kind of hard to argue with that, you know? But okay, then I almost want to play devil's advocate on that too, because like, I actually think some people are just not oriented this way. They're not oriented towards non-monogamy. And there's a way that I want to say, like, you can have really deep, fulfilling, meaningful relationship in a monogamous bond too. Like you and I have been together 10 years. Okay. But then 15 years in, you go through some big identity shift and I sort of like, maybe I don't know about this new version of you, but I, I get to encounter you in a fresh way. And that is going to show up in our emotional intimacy, but also in our sexual intimacy. Totally. And then it's like something new happens in our sexual connection yes. because you're actualizing. Yes. And I, to- I think that's great. That thing is real. And there's fucking very, very few people that are doing that. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I think that's so What are rare. they doing? They're saying, hold on, I'm going to go over here and have fun. Well, I think 99 point some percent of people are either um, doing the like uh, um, chasing the next new thing Uh or a slightly more mature version of it is like serial monogamy Uh or either doing that or they're in a long term relationship where they've just kind of like they're just plotting through. They just it's just kind of like, all right, I, I like I'm. Married to this woman, and I'm super entangled financially, domestically, kids, my identity, my whole community, my family, everything. And, and like, I just have to be with her, and the love is gone. But, and, and the, the capacity to do what you just described, I can't, because that requires this, like, courageous, yes. vulnerable, intimate, explore. And it requires like a death rebirth of the relationship, which requires a death rebirth of both people. Like it's a fucking tall order, what you yeah. just described. I just don't think most people are, are will do that. Yeah. 
it is like what I try to do with people in couples therapy. To- too, I think that's like, the fucking gold standard. I just kind think of it's like rare. it's okay that yeah. that version of your relationship is not working anymore. Totally. So like find a new yeah. part of yourself. Yeah. But okay. then there's this question of like, then am I attracted to the new version of you? Yeah. And then there's a crossroads. And that's the like groundlessness or impermanence, which actually creates vitality for people. Like, oh, I might actually lose you if you continue to grow. Yeah. Which is terrifying on this like root chakra thing. Totally. Terrifying. Yeah. But also it's incredibly invigorating. It's necessary. You can't try to like stop that. In yeah. a long relationship, you got to be ready to free fall sometimes. Yes. And, and not I, know. And I'm saying 99% of most long relationships don't do that thing you're saying. Don't do that free fall. They just stay. They don't allow both partners to grow and evolve and transform and change. And they don't allow the the relationship to have these cycles of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think 99% of relationships do not do that. Because it's fucking... A, there's not that many individuals who are like psychologically mature enough to do that. Yeah. And relationships usually don't start with two individuals that are that mature. Mm-hmm. So it's just super fucking rare, I think. Yeah. And I do think people get a taste for it in couples therapy sometimes. Yeah. I think couples therapy at its best can, <laughs> it's not always possible. can facilitate this. Yeah. But I even think couples therapy that does this is fairly rare. People don't usually come into couples therapy until it's too late and they're just like, this person, this fuck this person, they're a horrible piece of shit. That, she's a fucking bitch. Oh, I think that this relationship is going, should we call a couples therapist now? I was like, no, you should have two years ago. Yeah. I know John Gottman here at University of Minnesota, his research says that people come to therapy on average seven years too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, even I was, even I was too late. <laughs> I thought it was only two years. Yeah. Okay, so here's my answer okay, to this question that I posed to you. Yeah, let me hear it. The, um, the idea of jealousy comes to mind. Jealousy seems like such a big, important part of romantic relationships and monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so a big part of being in love is I love you, mm-hmm. and I love, and mostly I love that you love me. <laughs> Not, uh, that's not necessarily true, but that's a big part of it. It's and true. and I think, and when you look at me and you're in love with me, mm-hmm. you only love me. And you think I'm the best, most wonderful, beautiful, fantastic boy in the whole world. Yeah. And that feels fucking great. And that's part of the mutual lover's gaze. Mm. So my beloved looks at me and she tells me, oh, I love you, and you're the best, and, like, you feed this insecure Mm -hmm. ego in me that needs, we humans, we all have that insecure ego. And so you're feeding this to me. And it's a little bit like when I was six years old and I went to kindergarten and then went home and I was all scared, my mom came and gave that to me. Oh, baby, you're so wonderful. (laughs) And And it's like, oh, God, and I needed that when I was six years old. But weirdly, we humans never grow out of that need. And I fast forward now I'm 26 or 36 or 46. I still have that need. And I want my lover to give that to me. Right. And so I fall in love and she gives it to me. But after four years, she's not really giving it to me anymore. Mm. Right. Um, And then and then if she's like, hey, 
this guy Brad I'm working with asked me if I will go and have a uh, a glass of wine with him, and I can tell she. Th- it's like, what? You think Brad is the greatest? You're not giving it to me right now. It hits this fucking like I can't survive if you don't think I'm the best boy in the world. And so I'm jealous of Brad, and so I want to kill you and Brad because it's that sure. deep level of it's like an existential threat. Because I need you to like only look at me, and I'm the I'm the apple of your eye, and no one else can be the apple of your eye. And you I, think every human has that? No, but I think the vast majority of them do, like more than ninety percent. And I, I think it's a normal. I don't think it's an unhealthy thing. I think it's a normal developmental thing. I think that m- maybe ultimately we humans need to transcend that, but we're a long ways from doing mm-hmm. it. And I think most people. Here's my very um, jaded and critical view of the human race is that the vast majority of people have that as I'm talking about. And then there's a few people who don't have it, but the reason they don't have it isn't because they've transcended, it's because they've been traumatized out of needing it. Or feeling like they'll never get it, no matter how hard they try. And I sort of feel like those people don't get jealous because Mm. they were like, somehow that this thing I'm talking, they just have given up. They know they're never going to be chosen. Right. Yeah. It's tender. I mean, like, it feels like a really early attachment need. Like, this thing of, like, the parent, whichever parent or caregiver, like, delighting in the baby. It's like, you're mine. And I want you as close to me as I can keep you. And then we want to recreate that with our intimate partner, right? Of, like... Yeah, that yep. thing of like, it's something about being claimed. It feels like this fundamental need to belong somewhere yes. and that I can belong somewhere where even when I'm like broken or regressed or immature, I still belong with you. Yeah. And that's, it does seem very fundamental to our species. Totally. Okay, so, but here's, so here's my problem with this and with the whole monogamy thing. Is so I have that need, which is legitimate. I'm not upset with myself for having it. And you're my romantic partner, so I need you to feed that need. Sure. And then vice versa, right? And that's and so that's sort of our monogamous agreement is I'll tell you you're the apple of my eye, you tell me you're the apple of my eye. Good. Now we're both secure. Mm-hmm. But the problem is kind of as you were describing is that um we have all these other needs too. Yeah. And if we get married, we're the apple of each other's eye. We sign it in paper. You're the apple of my eye forever, for eternity, and vice versa. Good. Take the contract, put it in our pocket. Okay, good. That need is now satisfied for the rest of my life. That's sort of like a big part of what the romantic commitment or marriage is. But then, and, and in Maslow's hierarchies, like that level sort of is now met. Mm-hmm. But now that allows us to move up to other levels. And like Brad at work evokes this other thing in you or whatever and i'm like no you can't do that thing with brad because you because we agreed we're only going to do this thing that's the way relationships most that's the monogamous normative thing right now and the way most relationships work and i just don't know if i believe that my need to have you tell me i'm the apple of your eye should like trump all other needs i I just don't know if it doesn't seem right I guess I wonder if there's almost a developmental, like, I don't know if this exists, but is there like a developmental um, process for intimate relationships, right? So like similar for the child, the child initially needs to feel like they are their mom's own whole world. 
They need to feel subsumed by the mom, yes. combined with the mom, yeah. right? That's essential to create the bond. But then there's this natural developmental process where, and there's battles along the way, right? Where the mom opens her arms and the child is able to, the child is able to differentiate and be, yeah. and have their own life. Yeah. And they're still intimately connected to the mother and always will be, but it's so, so different. It's not subsumed in that way. So could it be that there's an adulthood, there's a similar, there's a parallel kind of development in intimate relationships where maybe this thing is important right away. That's limerence. I mean, I'm just theorizing. I, like I don't that know, idea. but there's an initial thing where it's like, I want to feel subsumed yeah. by you. I want to feel combined with you even, yeah. Yeah. you know, in order to, to f- meet that safety yeah. need, but then I start to feel, I, then I know you're a secure attachment for yeah. me, and I don't feel that I need to cling yeah. so much. I can start to express myself fully with friends mm-hmm. or with my children, right? Also, when I start to express myself fully with my children, if you're too if you're too insecure, you might even feel threatened by my bond with my children, yeah. no less another lover, yeah. right? But maybe this is a developmental process for adults. Yep, totally. And then, and you increasingly can differentiate from your partner. You're still in love. You still love each other. You're still in love, but there's not the need for that. Yeah. Um, and they maybe if we again the Maslow's pyramid thing, and maybe they can still meet those lower needs, including the you're my primary, yeah. but that doesn't have to be in conflict with these other different sexual exploration or erotic exploration or whatever else. I think we're t- we're talking about the ideal, the idealized case. I love case. the idea of that. I don't think I've ever seen it working totally in real life. Yeah. If, at least when I'm thinking about my. The patients I've worked with, when I think about the patients, uh, couples therapy or even individual people who are talking about their various non-monogamous, polyamorous, whatever thing. I don't think I've ever seen this ideal, but I like the sound of it. I think we should try it. Yeah. And then there's also the possibility that. Like, well, I don't know what I was going to say is that. Well, no, I think you do need that initial limerence, that initial like, in you know, enmeshment that's so delicious. I was going to say, could you do it without that? Like, could you actually come together with a person and not like, could you establish a secure bond with them without having that like, you know, um, right. enmeshment right. feeling? Yeah. Because it does seem like if you come together with that in love, intoxicated enmeshment thing, then this developmental trajectory you're talking about the it's ripping apart. It's gonna be fucking painful. You're not gonna be able to do it gracefully. Yeah. You're gonna do it with screaming anger, hatred, pain. Yeah. My husband and I have this metaphor that we've used for our relationship. And it came very early on, which is I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but we talked about our relationship as if we were sitting together in a screened-in porch. Mm-hmm. So it's like I sort of imagine a, like a love seat of this size, and he and I sitting in the screened-in porch. And so it's all covered with sc- We're outside, all covered with screens, which means you can watch the world go by. There's no problem. You can watch beautiful people go by. You can, you can like drool at them because they're so beautiful or you think they're so smart or whatever it is, and you watch them. And there's a screen door on both sides. I've got a screen door unlocked, unlatched. He's got a screen door unlocked and unlatched. 
And it's like, I am sitting on this couch with you because I want to be with you, but I'm watching the world and enjoying it. And there's fresh air coming in. And if I need to go out, I'm going to say to you, baby, I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. And then I go out and I come back in. If I come back in and he can go out and come back in. And so that's a like metaphor that's really important and useful for me around this, which is, and that was there very early on in our relationship, you know, like, um, and my, I, I love that metaphor. I think that's how it should be. And I think that humans should get there. I'm just w- skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Like when, when you get up and leave and go out the screen door, when I like look at him sitting there in the screen porch. It's painful. Like it's like, can, is he really going to be able to tolerate that? And then when you come back in, is he not going to like hate you or resent you or going to going to interrogate you and can you res- can you resume back to the blissful screen porch thing yeah welcome that's the impermanence of it right which actually keeps a relationship alive and, and keeps it hot too it keeps the sexual polarity high yeah. if that if there's a little bit of like uncertain i think if there's a little bit of uncertainty there's got to be enough safety yeah. but then there's some uncertainty yeah I, that know? makes sense to me but this thing you're, you're right this thing of when i walk out and, and he's sitting there or he walks out and i'm sitting here it's wretched right it's painful mm-hmm. but maybe that's a kind of pain that we can learn to to work with or get support from other people in the poly community. If you do know this term, it's called polyagony mm-hmm. <laughs> of that's just like the na- It's just a bout of polyagony. You know, you've like, it's jealousy and it's discomfort and it's craving and, totally. and wanting to be soothed. And it's, I think it comes with the territory. Totally. Yeah. I would, I, when I was dating a lot a while back, um, I, on some dating app and I went out with this woman Actually, I think on the dating app, she said that she's not, not, not in a poly relationship or something. And I went out, and as I was talking to her, eventually I got, I, I, at some point I had the realization of like, oh, she's only out on this date with me right now to mitigate polyagony because her primary is out on a date. And she's like, oh, fuck, I need to go on a date tonight. All right, dude, I'll meet you fucking tonight. And I'm like, she, I'm just, she's just doing this with me just to like deal with polyagony. And, and that's like, I really see that as a part of our Western culture, like this, like, and I mean, I'm not trying to set myself aside, apart from it. I feel it too. You know, it's just like that we tend, we just want to get away from suffering and fix it, like layer something pleasurable on top of suffering. And that creates, I just think that creates more suffering yeah. rather than just like, what if she just sat home and like had a good cry and watch a little Netflix with with a glass of wine, and it's like, okay, I was sad. Right. It was hard to watch home. you go. I and when missed he came you. home, was like, hey, I'm suffering. Do you still love me? And that's okay for her to ask. Do you still love me? And he's gonna say, of course I still. Hopefully, of course I still love you. You know, yeah. So the yeah, just that trying to get away from suffering is, I think sometimes the center of of our greatest suffering absolutely yeah